Welcome back to Tales of the Resistance. It's a podcast about resistance for microbes. Um, as always, I'm Mara Zeltz, uh, the project manager with the I Am Responsible team, and I'm going to be joined today on the podcast by the glorious Amber Patterson. Hello, I'm Amber Patterson. I'm the multimedia graphic designer for the Schmidt Lab and the I Am Responsible team, and I'm excited to be here. And, and equally glorious, uh, coming back again in the guest chair is Noelle Atiena More. Hi, uh, my name is Noelle Atiena More, as introduced, and I'm a recent doctoral graduate from the University of Nebraska in Lincoln, uh, where I majored in environmental engineering and studied antimicrobial resistance for my dissertation. And thanks for coming back again, Noelle, and as always for being here, Amber. Um, we're continuing our series um, exploring the book, uh, Quarantine Life from Cholera to COVID-19 by Kari Nixon. So we will move on with chapter seven. Uh, chapter seven is called An Ethics of Debate for the Ages, American Individualism and the Dilemma of the Healthy Carrier. This is based on events from the early 1900s, uh, 1906 be precise. And this uh, chapter begins with a discussion of Typhoid Mary. Typhoid Mary was a uh, cook in the early 1900s. She it turned out that she was what's called a healthy carrier for typhoid. So she had the um, infectious agent, the bacteria living in her, but she was not sick with typhoid. Um, and and because she was a cook, she had the capacity to uh, easily transfer this disease to a lot of people. So the story is all about how um, Mary Mallon, Typhoid Mary, um, basically was uh, sort of told by a public health official at the time that she had to stop working in a good paying job. Um, because some new, this new scientific understanding of germ theory was informing the public health people that she was uh, making people sick. The chapter kind of switches the story around to try and think about it from her perspective. Um, and she uses this sort of shift in perspective to illustrate three lessons. Uh, the first one is um, public health ethics are a question of personal liberties versus shared rights, but they are a first a question of personal versus shared realities. Number two, uh, you need to know about the socio-scientific discursive cycle. And number three, in which I, as in uh, Dr. Nixon, discuss German ghosts. So maybe we want to start with that first one. Uh, public health ethics are a question of personal liberties versus shared rights. But first, they're a question of personal versus shared realities. We, we've talked in previous lessons throughout this book about public health by nature will infringe on personal liberties for the public good. Um, but in this case, we didn't even get that far. Because first, you can't assume that Mary was acting um, just to preserve her um, personal liberties at the expense of other people's health. First, you have to question whether she could reasonably be expected to have believed um, what people were telling her. Um, 
because she was healthy and because the science was new. And so the lesson here is um, before you can get into any questions of ethics and whose rights matter more, first, we have to get shared realities. And that is obviously even more difficult in light of what we discussed in the last chapter about everybody having their own sort of uh, truth and experiences. It made me think of the fact that until it's experienced, we sometimes have a hard time making meaning of something. So like I've noticed with COVID that people were very like nonchalant or like brushed it off, but then they contracted COVID and either it reinforced their reality about what COVID was because they had a very mild case of it, or they began to take it more seriously because they got very sick. Yeah, I think until it's felt in the body, until it's experienced personally, it's hard for us to take at face value what someone prescribes to us as a way to live or a way to be. Yeah, more like it has to be close to home for you to relate with it. And uh, for me, uh, this lesson kind of made me think of the entire concept of I am responsible or I am responsible and how it came about, like how uh, each individual is responsible for the uh, antimicrobial resistance. And in fact, the entire public is also responsible for uh, antimicrobial resistance. And we are we all contain multitudes i guess we have individual rights and responsibilities we're part of a community that has rights and responsibilities and they interlock lock and they overlap and sometimes they're in conflict with each other and it's like um it's so complicated but um and i guess moving through and sort of try and navigating all these things is like going back again and again and again to the message i've been getting out of this book is the importance of things like empathy, patience, grace, you know, <laughs> like these words that like, it's tough. This is going to be tough. Antimicrobial COVID is tough. Antimicrobial resistance is going to be tough. We have to do it together. And, and getting to that point of, of working together on something from where we are now, which is so polarized and unhappy and, you know, it's, it is going to be hard, but it's, it, like we've said before, it's, it is the essential work of the, our time. You know, we do this, like, I think you said, Noel, a few podcasts ago, the, you know, what we'll all end up in the, in common ground in the grave, if we can't, um, uh, if we can't solve these problems. Okay, so uh, le- the second lesson in this book was called You Need to Know About the Socioscientific Discursive Cycle. So um, this, is, this is a lot of, you know, kind of big words, but the idea that Dr. Nixon is trying to describe here is that science and society are linked, right? So, and we kind of got into this a little bit in the last Uh, chapter discussion in the sense that um, science doesn't occur in a vacuum. It is done by people who live in a community and that community influences what science is done because we only find what we were looking for. And then that science has an impact on the community. You know, hopefully you're, you're solving community problems. And then um, 
now the community is different because of the science and so it has different um, priorities and that changes the way the science is going and so on and so forth um, and it's cyclical. Um, it, it might be a, a kind of interesting window here for our listeners who are not involved in especially academic research to kind of describe maybe the, the process. Well, I guess I would say a lot of times the very initial idea, it may come from other research, you know, it's, it, it's existing in this continuum, like we said, and and so you've, you've already had some experiences. But then where the society part comes in is uh, how do you get money for to do any of these things? And then the whole process of grant writing is usually how a new project begins. And I'm pretty new in my career and I am not a faculty member, so I don't do a lot of the grant writing myself. But I do know that um, there are, there's a sort of call Somebody has money, some funding agency. Um, it could be a sort of private industry. It could be the federal government, um, maybe even a, an individual philanthropist or something. They have money, but they're the ones who get to decide in broad strokes what is going to be researched. They will have, uh, you know, they call for proposals, but they have topics of interest you know, and those topics of interest, uh, like total, how those are sort of formulated totally depend on the, the institution or the individual that the funding is coming from. But in some cases, you know, if it's coming from a, a bureaucratic agency where the funds are taxpayer dollars, that they may be defined by the uh, needs of the constituents. So, so, so people, a lot of times in communities are ultimately the ones who decide what in broad strokes research is going to look like in the near or even long term um, when they just when they choose these priorities for for okay. topics and then the the more specifics uh, of actually defining what the research problem or uh, experiment is going to look like then then you bring that back to people like like Noel and, and the people that we worked with who could, all right, so we want to answer some question within that solves this problem or looks within this topic. Let's make a proposal um, that fits there. And that's kind of, then then it goes into the research realm. And um, I'll probably use an example here. Um, and this probably is in the case of COVID-19. I know most of my work is antimicrobial resistance, but most recently we've been first to the pandemic that is the coronavirus. And so with that, uh, the CDC put out a request for proposal uh, related to wastewater surveillance uh, for COVID-19. And so a lot of researchers then responded to that and then some got funding on using the wastewater to, uh, in like using wastewater as an indicator of where the coronavirus is and what strains of the coronavirus are available. And so that's even how Omicron was figured out to be whatever in whatever city or whatever states, for instance, in New York, Omicron had been found out to be there since November. And that was only made possible because of the wastewater surveillance by the CDC. And so on the research front, uh, once we do get the funding, uh, we have a research question that we are supposed to answer. And so within the research front, people would uh, identify several research questions. One would just be 
okay, is there a presence of this? And then another research question can be, uh, are there ways in which you can treat this issue? And then another research question can be, uh, how do we educate the public that this is an issue and how do we disseminate this information? And so having this in mind, researchers will come together, they would uh, plan an experiment, design the experiment, after experimental design, you'll do a couple of lab iterations to figure out what works, what does not work, uh, and then have some results where you collect a uh, thousand loads of data, uh, analyzing the data and eventually writing reports. And this report, some of them fulfill the agency or the funding agency requirements, which are probably annual. And then eventually when you do have a whole picture of what's actually happening, you can write a research paper which is submitted to a journal and that's where it's peer reviewed. And after peer reviewing, it's disseminated to the public where everyone can have access. But I guess this is not somewhere we can discuss this, but then the issue is how accessible is that research to the public? But briefly, yeah, that's what happens in research. Uh, you have a research question that you try to answer, form some experiments, analyze your data and then have some findings which you share out in public either through conferences, journal articles or reports. Right, and I'll just, I'll just jump in here with that final uh, little piece there, uh, coming back to society again. That's, a, you know, we, we went full circle, right? The society determined the topics of research, research was conducted, results now go out into society some of it's through sort of scientific publication. Some of it may be through work that um, like teams, like I Am Responsible does. It's just trying to say, okay, well, um, this paper, um, the source of paper may be maybe inaccessible or um, not, not everything in it is applicable. So how do we, um, you know, package the, the information that's coming out of this uh, report for all of the different audiences that need to know it. Who needs to know this information? And thinking about your audience, what do they already know? What context would they need to know to understand this new piece of information and how it can impact their lives? And then taking those things into account, you know, developing um, good science, uh, science communication um, strategies for a variety of different audiences um, with the goal that um, whatever the research, the uh, results come out of the research that are actionable, that could impact the original topic that was, uh, that the, the, the society had determined was of importance, some you know original uh, problem that they wanted to solve, that now we have come back with research and paired with communication uh, targeted for the different audiences who need to have that information in order to utilize the results in their lives. So it, it comes back full circle to um, people utilizing that information, changing the society that they live in, and therefore uh, the problems that the society needs to be addressed in future research. So with that, a very long tangent. <laughs> Uh, on lesson uh, that lesson, we we have one more lesson in this chapter, and it's the one on German ghosts. 
zeitgeist, basically, she's talking about here. She says the spirit of the age is what zeitgeist means, um, where she's talking about uh, levels of science literacy as not being an indicator, really, of, of how people um, receive information. It is a lot more to do with social, our social groups, you know, this is a section on, on sort of the spirit of the age, the society that which we live in, that's broad, but it's also sort of personal. She talks about movements that create community and the value of those communities in shaping our ideas. Those social groups are a bigger indicator of what we believe than our level of understanding of science that is presented to us. Yeah, and also one thing that caught me here was... Uh... Well, how she uh, reiterates about trying to find the reason behind why people do what they do, uh, because this will help us discover why people think that way. And with that, we can easily disseminate the information in a way that's suitable to that audience without trying to uh, berate them or even scold them, because that will not get us anywhere rather than trying to figure out the why in order to identify the what would work. Exactly, exactly. Coming alongside people mm-hmm. um, rather than standing in front of them yelling stop. Um, but yeah, it's, I, and we've, we've touched on that topic that mo- multiple times within this series as well. If that, if society requires for its survival, um, individual action to change, um, well, then how do you uh, make that happen? Well, you can't uh, over and over and over again throughout the book, she's talking about, well, you can't just say that. I mean, that's, you can't just say, well, society demands you change. And so you will change. You have to um, come alongside them, like you said. And uh, one of the things that's mentioned in the book is how the zeitgeist is, you know, you know, your body and, um, but she writes, perhaps we can trust our trust one's own body in collaboration with trusted experts. And I think that really sums it up. Like your experience is valid. Perhaps I have something to also bring to the conversation, you know, Mm -hmm. like what, um, I think that that collaboration is the key to moving forward. Yeah. And so I was just going to actually talk about that as well. And uh, this uh, kind of insights that Dr. Nixon gives to scientific communicators in that in as much as someone believes in their own system, how about collaborating, say, trust your own body in collaboration with trusted experts. And uh, also in the case of Mary Malone and uh, the public uh the public health person, uh, Sopers, who was coming after her. Uh, she also recognizes that it probably would have been faster if uh, they communicated and worked alongside each other rather than Marie Malone running off when she was, uh, when she was approached by Sopers, the public health person. And so like in many ways, uh, the scientific communicators need to be collaborative with the society in order to help pass this what they call scientific facts that people have faith in in order to pass that along as the truth we need to uh be in collaboration with the society uh, as amber just put across 
exactly. Some big overall thoughts are coming out of this chapter. So, um, and, and lots to think about for our own work within antimicrobial resistance in the years to come. So thank you, Dr. Nixon, for, <laughs> for writing it all down so clearly for us. <laughs> well, that brings us to the end of chapter seven. Uh, we will begin again next time with chapter eight. Yeah, appreciate everybody or appreciate you guys being here today. And we'll talk to everybody again soon. Thank you, Mara. Thanks, Mara. Yeah, you kind of summed up what I was trying to say in very many words, too. Well, I don't know if I, I think I kind of got on a tangent, casting about for some literary illusion that I don't remember, but that's okay. That's what podcasting is a media is medium is for. We'll cut all this out. <laughs>